Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. I'm super excited today. I have Jean Donaldson. You know Jean Donaldson. Everyone knows Jean Donaldson. She is the director of the Academy for Dog Trainers. And I invited her today to talk to me about scarcity and how that shows up in the world. And to start with, I thought we'd start with resource guarding because who knows resource guarding better than Jean Donaldson. So hi, Jean. Welcome. Hi, Colleen. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start with resource guarding. What is it? Resource guarding is a term that is basically, it operationalizes the stuff that dogs do when they have possession of their food, their food dish. Sometimes it'll be a toy, it'll be an object or a chewy thing. Sometimes it'll be a sleeping location, they'll get on the sofa, and then they threaten or aggress towards any approacher. So if a dog or a person, and sometimes they guard exclusively against people, sometimes they guard exclusively against dogs, and sometimes they guard against both approaches, they defend that resource. Uh, and it it has its origin. Um, it's great that the topic here is scarcity insofar as animal predators um, evolved amid scarcity. So they would, there would be differential survival depending on how well animals were be able to obtain and defend scarce resources. And the big, big ticket ones are food and females. Uh, and in the case of pet dogs, we see the defense of food kind of bleed out into kind of less adaptive things, um, such as inanimate objects. So a border collie might guard his tennis ball, even though that's not going to make or break his survival. It's the same software program program that is running. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because they're just, it really is. just like, I need it. <laughs> it's Animal Planet in our living room. I mean, we all pay money to get cable channels so we can watch lions on the open plain, you know, growling each other off their bit of carcass. And we have that right in our own living rooms. Mm -hmm. And some animals are better at it than others in terms of of that whole idea of the predator uh, who who has who controls the resources wins. My dog would like to guard his bed against our cat, and he growls about it sometimes, and then the cat lays on top of him. So he's attempting resource guarding, but he isn't really very successful. It's wholly unsuccessful. <laughs> I mean, that's a great point because in pets, there's no longer selection pressure. So if there's a dog who doesn't guard resources and doesn't guard food, doesn't guard anything, or like your dog is just pants at it, I mean, he can't do it properly, they don't get selected out of the gene pool the way it happens in wild populations where it becomes actually a fixed trait because anybody who doesn't do it is outperformed on the evolutionary playing field. So in dogs, you see this drifting of the trait all over the place where it can sometimes fire at the wrong thing. Guards will, dogs will guard tennis balls or they don't guard at all or they, they do it partially or they do it kind of in, in a dumb way because the selection pressure is lifted and so so these wonky variations can come up, come on stream. And sometimes when people are talking about resource guarding, we act like we don't have any. Oh, yeah. No, plenty of people do. I mean, <laughs> I think we, we can absolutely get very defensive about our stuff. I and mean, we have entire systems of law that have to do with theft and burglary and embezzlement and so on that we don't want anybody touching our stuff either. I know. Whenever someone would talk to me about their dog, I'd be like, and so if I just grab your car keys and go, we're good, right? <laughs> and they'd be like, uh, no. Like, Very oh, true. That's the point. Mm -hmm. 
So if we're looking at it from the idea of scarcity, and then we're trying to extrapolate out toward people a little bit, what do you think is happening in our minds when we feel like we have too little? I, when we have too little, I mean, uh, my my guess is that it probably has some tentacles leading way back into our evolutionary history where there was, again, d- differential survival, differential reproduction, depending on how well we were able to maintain the, the key things of of life. Uh, And certainly we see it in things like sexual jealousy, where we want to assure our partners are faithful, males want to assure paternity of their children. I mean, we can override that with our, you know, our better angels. But the basic sort of evolutionary software is that if key things that we need to survive and to reproduce are not present or are not are in short enough supply, then that that becomes actually somewhat of an emergency. Mm-hmm. And I think then we can kind of extrapolate that out to things that are probably, you know, we're, we're many of us certainly in developed countries, we're not underfed, but we can sort of feel uh, scarcity of, of other things. We can feel emotional scarcity. We can feel scarcity in our relationships. We can feel, sometimes people feel scarcity a- about food and about possessions that people will hoard. People will shop for stuff. I mean, we are, you know, it, it to me, those are all possibly related. I think they are too. Uh, not a scientist, can't prove it, but I definitely think that, that those elements all feed together for that idea of trying to trying to control what we can and, and keep keep what we need and, yeah. you know, gather it. And so that leads to sort of a feeling of anxiety and, and a desire to control situations in our environment. So in dogs, what do you say we should do to try to mitigate that? I mean, in dogs, it used to be. So way in the old days, it was seen sort of as an act of insubordination. It was basically just misbehavior, and people were very heavy-handed. Now, we understand, first of all, that there's, you know, not a great side effect profile to those kinds of aversive techniques. And the other thing we recognize is that it is, it is born of a sense of scarcity. It's born of a kind of paranoia. The dog is not being insubordinate. He's being paranoid. He's being desperate. Mm -hmm. in a way that if he in his mind or in sort of his deep psyche if he loses this bone he could die and so he you know he has to run the software and so our our treatment um now is centered around teaching the dog that in fact when uh, you, you know, would-be usurpers approach. We're not approaching to take his stuff away and leave him to, to starve. We're approaching to give. And so we do object exchanges. We do additions to the food bowl. And over time, conditioning. Luckily, animals also evolve this capacity to learn. They have this great plasticity. So if we play our cards right and we do it well, the dog learns that, boy, you know what? He wasn't approaching to take my stuff away. He was approaching to hold it while I got a bonus and then I get my thing back (laughs) and they can readily learn that Um, and so it's a very gratifying problem to teach because you get to see the dog go from this paranoid scarcity mentality being to one who feels a lot safer in his world Mm -hmm. and I think that feeling of safety 
depends so much on some certainty about what might happen. And you're creating a story that whoever is coming is coming for good. <laughs> They're coming to give. They're coming to gently hold that while you have something better and then give it back. And so that that piece of, I don't know what's going to happen, so I have to hang on, can kind of go away and ease. It is. I mean, isn't it, isn't it great when in, in any way, shape or form, and this is one example, where the world goes from being a little bit dangerous, a little bit scary, to actually it's kind of safe. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it's expansive and there's plenty for everybody. And, you know, beings are actually on my side and so on. I think that's a really good thing. And I think that's, you know, we were talking a little bit um, uh, before we started about burnout in trainers. And sometimes I think that, you know, trainers don't feel very well nourished. They Mm -hmm. sort of feel as though, you know, if they have a couple of cases that don't go well, um, and there's, you know, they're not getting good support from their colleagues, that that can feel very sort of depleting and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it is dangerous, because first off, if we ever lose a trainer, that's all that institutional knowledge, just walking away to go work somewhere else. Yeah, but it also doesn't help anyone for us to allow people to hit that point. Yes. Yeah. I mean, trainers are beings too. And I think because we're so self-selected to be empathizers, we tend to feel very deeply the plight of dogs. Some of us feel very deeply the plight of our clients or our students. Uh, We suffer all this vicarious trauma. And so we take that on and we forget that, you know, we're not made out of iron. We need Mm -hmm. to do whatever it takes to keep us in the game, to keep us not just sort of surviving, but having actually a thriving career. Sometimes I, I mean, I worry about losing trainers to burnout, but sometimes I've seen trainers who actually seem like they're kind of on the ragged edge, they're compassion fatigued, they're, they're barely coping. Mm -hmm. They're staying in the business. and And I think they would be better off maybe going off for a while because they're only there at that point serving their clients well and their quality of life is no good and we deserve a good quality of life as much as the dogs that we serve. Absolutely. I was talking to a nurse who works with hospitals on compassion fatigue and and she said she always says, oh, we've all seen it happen. There are the ones who burn out and leave and there are ones who burn out and stay. (laughs) The ones who burn out and stay are are in a way scarier, Mm -hmm. you know, because their their quality of life is now nil and they're not doing their jobs the way they should. And I think it's pretty apparent to those around them that that's how they are. So they're not really serving their professions. And so scarcity plays a role in that, too. The scarcity of time, the scarcity of energy, the scarcity of emotional bandwidth. Yeah. What would you suggest for people when they're when they're on the edge of that? They mean get get themselves to resources. Um, I mean, now more than ever, because of the Internet, there are fantastic resources such as you. There's resources such as Jessica Dolce. There's books, magazines, articles. Um, meditation, self-care resources that we have to remember that, you know, we're not, uh, uh, like I said, we're not indestructible. Uh, And people, and and I think for everybody, it's a little bit different. Whatever it is that, you know, nourishes them and, and, you know, replenishes the energy that, that, that we might lose doing our work, that we, you know, find what it is and find the balance. Some people can, can work X amount. Some people can work Y amount and case type, what kinds of 
pieces of the work are you good at and, and do you thrive on? I don't think it's good enough to just survive. I do think that I'm hoping that the, the you know, the standard for dog trainers is going to become thriving, not just surviving. Mm-hmm. While you were talking, it made me think of there is an assessment tool called the person activity fit that tries to help a person figure out what activities might restore them. Are they someone who needs more nature? Or are they someone who needs... So I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it is true that there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. And we sometimes talk about it like there is. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, people different differ just in terms of... I just had a, a house guest and she is fantastically outgoing and her you know, she finds it very replenishing to be around people and to talk to people even if they're brand new people uh, and other people uh, need quiet time they need time on their own it might be with nature it might be reading books uh, it might be just binge watching a show uh, and you know knowing oneself is critically important as you say it really is not one size fits all what are the things that help you restore I'm a quiet time person. Um, I like to read. Um, I like to sort of do things that are outside of, of dogs. I, you know, I like movies uh, and, and I need time by myself. I need time where I'm not outputting, you know, so much of my job and, and so much of your job is outputting that I need to have a sense that I'm, I'm inputting, you know, something and it needs to be on a different topic altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, that's how I recharge Yeah, I want to follow up on that a little bit about the something outside of dogs, because that is something I've often recommended to people, and it gets met with some resistance. I don't have any interests outside of dogs. Oh, oh, yeah, Uh, they think that that's all there is. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So why do you think that's so important? Do you end up nudging them very strongly and saying, you know what, try something outside of dogs? (laughs) I do. (laughs) It's a very sweet, gentle, uh, no, really, give it a shot. You'll find something. There's something out there that you like. There for sure there is something. <laughs> Even if you have to take like halfway measures, like I'm going to learn cross stitch and I'm going to do all dog related cross stitches. Oh, okay. yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's a right. start. That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Knit dog pajamas. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting how our brain sort of needs that time away, needs to be thinking about something unrelated to be able to bounce back and say, oh, I have clever new creative ideas that apply that I would never have thought of when I was completely depleted. Yep. I know many people who sometimes they they don't get their best ideas when they're sitting in front of the computer trying to generate it. They often do so when they're walking or in their they're in the shower or they're cooking or they're doing something else. It's almost as though flipping something to the back burner. The mm-hmm. back burner does a better job than your front burner. Um, and I certainly sometimes you know think better if I'm moving, if I'm walking mm-hmm. instead of staring at a blank page. Uh, and so I I do think that you know getting uh you know out of the dog part of your brain is good. And sometimes you get insights because, you know, there's so many activities are ultimately sort of connected that I think um, you can you can bring something fresh to bear and just not be immersed all the time in dogs, especially if it's challenging dog stuff. I mean, some people right. find that their happy place is just spending time with their own dog doing nothing too challenging. And I think, you know, that that probably is an acceptable alternative, too. Mm hmm. I I do have a trainer friend who said she went around to all the vets in her area and she said, I'm so grateful for all the clients you send me. But I would like to tell you, I like puppies too. I like easy dogs. (laughs) 
have to send me your worst cases. Yeah. She was like, it's lovely that you have this faith in me, but I just want to remind you, <laughs> when a puppy comes in, I can help there too. That's and and we're now and we're increasingly as pet dog training has become a bona fide specialty. We're increasingly in a place where, depending on one's market where you're living, you can sometimes specialize more. And so you don't have to be a jack of all trades. You can say, you know what, I found that my thing is classes or my thing is puppies or you know, like like for me, what now I don't do many cases, but when I do them there. It's a chow. I I do only chows. That's my thing. You know that you you know it's quite okay to specialize and sometimes it takes some meandering around to find the specialty that is your thing mm-hmm. and when you say meandering it, it brings to mind what you said earlier about needing to walk sometimes to get the ideas and I'm forgetting the name of the book but there's a book where he, he talks about the variables within the brain and it's that the brain was designed to solve problems related to survival in an outdoor environment in nearly constant motion and so that's why it really, you know, going out in nature and taking a walk and it's so restorative to us because yeah. our brain is wired for that. And we sit at our computer and we say, brilliance will come if I sit here yeah, indoors yeah. very still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And our words are, in our worlds, it can be very abstract, you know. And I think that sometimes doing stuff with your hands, doing something physical. I mean, maybe it's working out, maybe it's playing a musical instrument, but doing something a little more physical. Uh, dog training is physical, but there's an awful lot of thought. If we get out of sort of the abstraction, I think sometimes, you know, that can be an interesting uh, side hobby. Absolutely. So from the perspective of scarcity and, and really trying to first off acknowledge it and then move through it, what would you say are some of the the things that you'd recommend for people? Uh, for dog trainers, I mean, there's a few things that they need to attend to their basics. You know, the, the, you know, things like three square meals a day, getting enough sleep, getting exercise, being in good condition, you know, getting disease screened, you know, ba- very rock bottom basic self-care, making sure that you're in a community and it might be your professional community, it might be your friends or both where you feel supported, where, you, you know, you, 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 you feel validated, where you can bounce ideas around and that might be your social setting, uh, but also in, in, prof- in your professional world, Do you have colleagues um, who will empathize? So if you have a a rough day or are needing somebody to brainstorm with you, do you have that? Mm -hmm. And when you are in that environment, when you're with them, do you come away feeling better or do you come away feeling worse? You know, to kind of make sure you've got your fingers on your own pulse um, and, and how are you feeling? And there's no right or wrong sort of, we tend to be a bit of a guilty bunch dog trainers that we feel like we're not saving enough, Mm -hmm. we're not saving them all. And, you know, and I worry about that. I worry about dog trainers, you know, the degree of self-care and the quality of their self-care. Yes. And I love that you described it as rock bottom basic care. And yet, oh, I'd say a good two thirds of the trainers I know aren't meeting those criteria. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're not doing it. And they don't recognize how important it is. You know, they'll say I don't have, you know, I, I, I never have two consecutive days off, or I barely have one day off. Uh, and they're and they're feeling tired. Uh, and they really need somebody to kick them in the pants and say, you know, 
that that's not you it's not a sustainable you can't do that and they might say well i can't because and they'll they'll enumerate the reasons why it just can't possibly happen but of course it can and it must and getting people from that idea of feeling trapped that they don't have any other options to recognizing that they that this is not optional is is to me that the, the breakthrough that many people need i agree and i think um, sometimes scarcity can help with that in terms of the idea that it's sort of orienting our mind toward unfulfilled needs. It's saying, whoa, wait a second. I only have so much of me to go around. How am I spending it? And sometimes we spend our me inappropriately. We're, we're too busy helping everyone else until we completely drain. And yeah. other times we go, oh, wait, maybe I do need to take a step back and, and refill so that I have more to give. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, you know, sort of curating one's own content. I mean, there's certainly plenty of evil in the world. There's plenty of, you know, still bad dog training. We're an un- unregulated profession. There's a lot of incompetence out there. There's a lot of unscrupulousness out there, uh, bad stories. And I think I find that trainers sometimes they it's almost like they want to form a, a scrum of outrage <laughs> and you know they, they you know look how bad this is look what this trainer did look what this website I found look what this is look how bad this is and you know and, and they're quite right yeah that's bad but electing to spend your finite time on earth immersed in that you know and having other people you know you know fly the outrage i mean so sometimes you have no choice i mean you're confronted with something and it's good to have empathetic ears but i find that some trainers they almost seek it out you know just that yeah and i don't i'm not sure that's a healthy habit for everybody um and it's not a good use of time i agree it is interesting when when they look at who's most at risk for compassion fatigue. First off, everyone is at risk, but the people most at risk for compassion fatigue are people who really want to do a good job. They are motivated, they have strong desire, and they're tremendously empathetic. So kind of ultra conscientious. Yeah, it's like your ideal person is also the one who is most at risk <laughs> because you want a motivated person. You want someone who cares deeply and passionately and wants to move forward, but he or she is also the one most likely to go, wow, <laughs> done, yeah. too full. And feel overwhelmed. I worry, I mean, I have graduates and you know, I get to know them very well. The program is two years long uh, and sometimes they're, they're, they're brilliant. I mean, and they, they've got the potential to be just star practitioners and occasionally they'll have a streak of perfectionism or, or worry and that's coupled with some anxiety. And I worry about them. I worry about their once they collide with the real world. And and I often say that in dog training, we're in the lemonade business where we understand principles and so on. When it collides with the client, collides with the reality, we're stuck sort of, you know, making do and doing the best possible, you know, uh, approximation of uh, of an outcome uh, given the constraints of the client and the dog and so on. And I worry about the perfectionist. And that's the type that you were just describing, the kind of hyper conscientious, everything must be exact. Exactly so. And when you're in an academic setting, you can certainly pull out all the stops and, and you know, get, a, you know, a, a very good or a perfect grade. But out there in the world, that, that can, I think, end up depleting them. And, and once again, we'd be losing, in many cases, the most talented people that we can't afford to lose. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge problem 
in the veterinary community because so many vets are the high achieving, always yeah. did amazing in school, got a good grade, and then they come out into the real world and they know the very best practice for this yeah. case. And they are faced with limited resources, both yeah. uh, in terms of equipment available in their facility, but also financial ability of of their clients. And it's very difficult and frustrating and causes a lot of stress. Yeah. And they can be put in a terrible situation. Um, I know veterinarians, it'll, it'll be the case. They, they come out of school, they've got massive student debt, they've got overhead, they've, you know, set up a practice. In many cases, they're owners or part owners of a practice. And they're, you know, under colossal financial strain, uh, owners come in, and kind of do what I call the protection racket, where they say, you know, you must treat this, I'm not going to pay to treat this animal, you must treat this animal, otherwise you are heartless. Mm -hmm. um, and wow, I mean, that kind of person that the owner is the one who's bonded to this animal, and they're not willing to pay, they think the veterinarian is somehow a mercenary or financially motivated. And, and they put the veterinarian in that position. You know, I that that is just so unacceptable and, and a, such a cruel thing that people do to veterinarians um, who would be out of business if were they to try and operate that way. It's just not tenable. We would not have veterinarians, um, and so I do feel very protective of veterinarians uh, for that and other reasons. And dog trainers get that to to some degree as well. That you know we're expected to do it for for love, not money. But that's again, it's not sustainable. Um, you you know we we need to put bread on the table like everybody else. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many veterinarians I've talked to who've said they've been accused of being in it for the money. And before the first one said that to me, that had never once crossed my mind that anyone said that to a vet. I admit that's a little myopic of me, but I it just hadn't occurred to me to yell at my vet and complain about the pricing. <laughs> um, yet it's something they've they've all said it to me, that sooner or later someone says, you're just in it for the money, you don't even care about animals. And dog training often is seen as um, like you need veterinary care, but dog training is a bonus and a frivolous activity and you know just nice to have and fun. And so that emotional manipulation plays there too sometimes because when you're charging some, something and people go, huh, that much? There can be a desire to lower it. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, I see it. I see it all the time. And I, I try to encourage dog trainers to to not own that. So if a client is that way, they're, you know, considered a filter, you know, the client is, is that's the way they're they're being and, and coming back again to scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a sense that, oh, my God, if I don't take this client, I'm going to die. You don't have to take all comers. You don't have to work with all people. And if people advertise at the outset that they uh, don't value your services, um, they don't value you, they don't value the dog, and they're, un you know, they, they, they are implying that you are somehow inappropriately pricing your services, give them the door. Uh, quite honestly, that, you know, that we, 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 it's far too important to protect dog trainers than to, you know, let that person go in. And if they want to bargain, let them, let them go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that was such a beautiful summation. That seems like a really good spot to end. <laughs> so thanks so much for coming on Unleashed today. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where could they do that? Uh, the best place to go is to our website, which is academyfordogtrainers.com. Thank you. Do you want to feel stronger, happier, and more resilient? Let's face it, who doesn't? Check out the new Unleashed Resilience Skills Groups. 
They're online small group sessions that are guaranteed to improve your outlook on life. Visit ColleenPilar.com for more info.